Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a contemporary look at recovery from substance use and process disorders. Now, with less dogma and more bite, this is episode 43. We bring you a case for the February 2s. At the time of recording, it's February 2019. We have two books, two authors that we want to talk about two interviews, and two songs on this show. We'll still have you out of here in less than an hour. From the UK, Tokyo Taboo has a new song out. We'll hear from them. We'll hear from Sleepless Nights, a new band of A.A. Wallace from Canada's East Coast. Jeffrey Munn is from the addiction mental health world, and he authored a couple of books. We're talking about... Sober Without God, The Practical 12 Steps to Long-Term Recovery from Alcoholism and Addiction. Also hot off the press, youth worker M. Andrew Tennyson is talking to us today about Killing the Bear, Surviving Teenage Addiction. I can't decide who first. Sheesh! We'll go back and forth. Uh, Rebellion Dogs Publishing ended January with a feature article in TheFix.com. And in a way, it sets the table for today's discussion. We won't be talking exclusively about youth, but there's a lot today that's nudging us in the direction of young people. So, by the time you're listening to this, I'm in and out of what was my trip to San Francisco for this year's symposium on AA history. It's a packed program, and I'm doing an hour on the debate over special purpose groups, women, LGBTQ, secular AA, young people, for example. According to AA's most recent triennial survey, there's 20,000 AA members that are 20 years of age or younger, 1% of AA's 2 million members. The elders of Generation Z will turn 20 in 2019. Wish them happy birthday. Barna Research Group surveyed 13 to 18 year olds. Oh, and I owe a special thanks to Mark from Texas for pointing me towards this new report. Here's something that the survey reveals. More than any other generation before them, Gen Z does not assert a religious identity. They might be drawn to things spiritual, but with a vastly different starting point from previous generations, many of whom received a basic education on the Bible and Christianity, and it shows the percentage of Gen Z that identify as atheist is double that of the U.S. adult population. My own observation is that it's not just uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview uh, versus a non-theistic worldview, but other religious worldviews are on the rise in North America too. Polytheism, like Hindus, non-theists like Buddhists or Taoists, and plenty of monotheists would have to navigate around AA's uh, use of the word God or He in describing the creator of the universe. Sikhs and Muslims, for example. The Fix article asks if the 12-step and larger mutual aid community is ready for the taste of a new generation. Jeffrey Munn contributed to the Fix essay, Let's have them open the episode in a not-so-usual way for us, but you know what I mean. Uh, Let's hear him read out his practical 12 steps. This is Jeffrey Munn, licensed marriage and family therapist and author of Staying Sober Without God, The Practical 12 Steps to Long-Term Recovery from Alcoholism and Addictions, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Practical 12 Steps. 1. Admitted we were caught in a self-destructive cycle and currently lacked the tools to stop it. 2. Trusted that a healthy lifestyle was attainable through social support and consistent self-improvement. 3. Committed to a lifestyle of recovery, 
focusing only on what we could control. Four, made a comprehensive list of our resentments, fears, and harmful actions. Five, shared our lists with a trustworthy person. Six, made a list of our unhealthy character traits. Seven, began cultivating healthy character traits through consistent positive behavior. Eight, determined the best way to make amends to those we had harmed. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would cause harm. Ten, practiced daily self-reflection and continued making amends whenever necessary. Eleven, we started meditating. Twelve, thought to retain our newfound recovery lifestyle by teaching it to those willing to learn and by surrounding ourselves with healthy people. Secular, by one definition, is neither religious nor irreligious. This practical narrative of the 12-step experience isn't anti-anything, but it treats those with a natural worldview the same way as those with a supernatural worldview, and I think that's a good thing. I'm going to jump into my discussion now with M. Andrew Tennyson, and we'll get into my chat with Jeffrey a little bit later in the show. If you have kids, grandkids, nephews, nieces, uh, what do you know about their drug use? Mark Andrew Tennyson uh, worked with troubled youth, but didn't or couldn't see the trouble with his own son, Ian. I'm going to have Mark read from his book for three minutes, and then we'll get into our chat. Then we'll hear a tune from Tokyo Taboo, and we'll be on to Jeffrey. So here is From Killing the Bear, Surviving Teen Addiction, Mark Andrew Tennyson. But the real problem was that Marie and I consistently underestimated the depth of Ian's relationship with drugs. Having discovered his drug use several years after it started, we had no idea of the extent to which we, they had become part of his daily life. In time, we came to understand that Ian was smoking marijuana on the way to school, during the lunch hour, after school, and at night. To fall asleep, he smoked a joint. To wake up, he smoked a joint. Like many other regular marijuana users, it became Ian's way of coping with everyday life. He occasionally tried quitting, but he became irritable, restless, and depressed. Nor did we understand much about the drug he was using. Like many parents who grew up in the 60s, we believed the pot that was passed around and was the same drug our son was smoking now. And we believed, as most of our generation did, that it was not one of the hard drugs. We did not know that most teen users, especially those who live in suburban areas like my son, eventually gravitate toward increasingly potent forms of marijuana called chronic. That he and had to store it in a sealed mason jar, otherwise the smell would have filled his bedroom. We also failed to appreciate how much Ian's age had to do with this, this problem. Early adolescent drug use is much different than late adolescence, early adulthood use. Teens who begin using prior to age 15 have four times the chance of developing serious problems with drugs or alcohol than those who begin using after age 15. The mood-altering substances that provide short-term relief from the storms and stresses of early adolescence delay the maturation process that comes along with learning to manage the ups and downs of life. By the time they reach age 17 or 18, faced with the growing challenges they're done using peers that Mick learned to manage, young marijuana users are overwhelmed. They can't catch up with their classmates, but they can get high, and they usually will, despite the promises to turn things around. Or, but perhaps our most fundamental error was our persistent belief that Ian's drug problems could be solved by finding the right therapist, the right medication, or the right school. While the extent of his drug problem was becoming increasingly difficult to deny, we were clueless about the solution. We thought that by changing schools, Ian would somehow magically come around. He could do better in school and feel better about himself and stop using drugs. Instead, he went from the frying pan into the fire. By the time Ian was a senior in high school, after dozens of promises to change had come and gone, things were worse than ever. I found it hard to believe anything my son said. Whatever he promised to do, nothing ever changed for any length of time. There was no trust left. 
with no real relationship either. It was as if someone had kidnapped her son and replaced him with someone else. But he had not been kidnapped. He had fallen in love, not with a girl, but with his pot. It was a costly relationship. It slowed him down in school. It robbed him of his motivation. But at least it was dependable, and it provided some temporary relief from the awareness of the losses in his life. And his life became more difficult as the losses piled up was all the more necessary. This is uh, Mark Andrew Tennyson, author of Killing the Bear, and we're talking on Rebellion Dogs Radio. Uh, Mark, you must have done a lot of writing in uh, school and from work. I is this the first book you've ever written? This is the first book. I've, I've written about um, 35 or 36 articles for uh, the local uh, newspaper uh, having to do with uh, addiction, especially teen addiction. This is a, a drama that involves many characters. Uh, did you ever have any thought, like in the construction of the book, that it would always be you telling the story? Had you considered having your son tell part of his story or your wife tell part of her story in her own, in their own well, words? That's a good question, Joe. I, I did think about that, and, and people that read some of the, the manuscripts along the way said, well, this is, what about your wife? What was she going through? And what was your son going through? And I think that those are legitimate concerns, but I, I felt I could really only speak from my experience, ultimately. I'm not sure many parents have done this. I know David Shep did in Beautiful Boy, um, and, and he also had his son write his account. But I thought, you know, what I could speak to is what it was like to go through, you know, that process for myself. And... I could probably discern what it was like for my wife if I asked her enough questions. What I find, I'm involved in support groups, two local support groups that are designed for parents or their Al-Anon meetings. Yeah. And there's some unique things that parents bring. Um, I, I would, I noticed, you know, I go to some meetings and they have parents show up and they show up once and never come there again. Mm -hmm. Part of it was um, they felt so awful about what had happened and were blaming themselves. It was such shame um, and such a sense of guilt and responsibility that when they were told there's nothing you could do, they thought, well, why am I here? Uh, they, they felt this need to somehow jump in and help solve this problem. Because whatever they understood about addiction, they understood at some level their son or daughter. In some respects, it was important to legitimize that what feelings you go through as a parent to be, you think you're going crazy if you, if you uh, are just doing this on your own. So to have someone tell it from their perspective with all the ups and downs and the, the, the things you don't want to admit to other people uh, is more helpful for parents to read that and say, you know, that's what I thought. That's what I felt. Yeah. You know, parents that show up and I'm here, basically I'm left to planning my, my kid's funeral. That's what, I'm a planner, so... Uh, but I can't say that to my neighbors. I can't say that even to my relatives. So it was really a way to kind of uh, validate some of the internal processes that you know parents go through when they're when they're facing this problem. You really nailed one issue, I think, for like baby boomer parents who smoke pot themselves and. And maybe they even had drug dependency problems. Maybe they're even in recovery themselves. But the pot didn't seem so bad. But the marijuana today isn't the marijuana that was going through the high schools and universities of the 1970s, is it? No, no. I think that was probably 4% or less. And now the University of Mississippi, I think, does regular studies of confis street confiscated marijuana. It's, the average is about 10, but with some of the 10%. Um, but some of the edibles now, I'm hearing 30%. And one of the most alarming statistics I heard, Joe, was that you know, for, for years you'd read that uh, marijuana overdoses were simply unheard of. They just never happened. Yeah. And I think that probably was true. But in 1992, there were about 16,500 admissions to emergency rooms for marijuana overdoses. And by 2008, that number was 325,000. <laughs> so a 20-fold increase, largely attributed to the increased potency. 
I think it's a mistake, whether it's Navy Boomers or anybody else, to impose your own experience on somebody else and think, well, I didn't get addicted to it, so yeah. how could anybody else? Yeah. And that, that, that goes for any substance, you know. And, and some, sometimes you hear people say, I don't know why that person can't stop drinking. I did, or I can control it. And any time you impose that, your own experience on someone else, and that can be helpful. There is a large perception out there that marijuana is not dangerous, and I, and I understand that, you know, in terms of pure addictive potential, cocaine and, and methamphetamines and, and opiates are certainly more powerful, but, you know, I, my view is the most dangerous drug is the one that gets you. Yeah. You know, and if it's a pure lethality, I mean, cigarettes kill far more people than any other drug. They don't render you dysfunctional until you're, you know, you have lung cancer. But in terms of pure lethality, there's nothing that compares to it, and yet it's not looked upon that way. So, um, and I think the same goes with marijuana. It's, uh, you know, I, I used to feel differently. I used to get almost enraged at the whole legalization uh, issue because because of the effect it had on my son. Mm-hmm. But in time, you know, I've come to understand people have their own experiences, and I don't like the idea of uh, a high school kid in jail for doing a doobie during the lunch hour. I mean, that's, that's not my intention. Uh, but I think it's to recognize that there things have changed with marijuana, and there are real risks for vulnerable people, and uh, we shouldn't be minimizing that. Yeah. Another author who makes an interesting comparison to addiction and I don't know how you feel about the disease model of addiction, but I know that uh, Mark Lewis, who is uh, a sort of brain scientist and an addict himself, he's written a couple of books about addiction, and he isn't enamored with the disease model. He really treats addiction as being more like, uh, you know, love in terms of the way it, the 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 brain chemistry is concerned and you talked about how your son hadn't been kidnapped it's like he'd fallen in love not with a girl but with his pot and you even quote uh from uh caroline knapp who wrote uh, drinking a, a love story um how do you feel about like the disease model are, are you do you do you have a, a horse in that race i can get in over my head real real quickly when I'm talking about scientific matters. That wasn't my strong point. I liked the arts and writing in school, but but I, I had to learn to understand more about that disease model and some of the, the impact on, on the brain. You know, my best understanding of, of addiction is that it's a biopsychosocial disease, meaning there's a genetic vulnerability that's at play, uh, adverse life experiences, like perhaps mental health issues or abuse or neglect or trauma. And then the cultural context, does your culture really allow or even encourage uh, people or young people in particular to use? And when those three things come together, people have problems. And But it's sort of like the, the story of the, the blind men touching the elephant. Whatever part of the elephant that they touch often defines their reality. And they may see a dysfunctional family a kid is usually coming from a dysfunctional family and think it's, well, the family that's causing it, not realizing that the family may be dysfunctional because of the addiction rather than the other way around. I was really smitten with Carolyn Knapp's view of uh, addiction as, uh, you know, a, a deep pathological relationship with a chemical that interferes with other relationships. Yeah. That's one of the most useful explanations I've ever heard. It resonates with almost everybody. Uh, who's dealt with this. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's useful when I talk with parents to explain, you know, it's like your kid is falling in love with somebody. It's not that they don't love you anymore. It's just that you're kind of taking a back seat for a while. Good parent groups in that program that I that ran, the Discovery Program. Yeah. And I always felt it was useful to do about an hour of support a week and an hour of uh, more uh, learning about the disease. Yeah. And usually it started with the support, you know, how, how was the week going, what have you been dealing with? And then we would have uh, a lecture and uh, sort of an interactive lecture afterwards. But when I would talk about the causes of addiction, this bio, uh, biopsychosocial yeah. model, 
when I talked about the Giants vulnerability, the parents would say, oh, you're just making excuses. You know, that you're just, you're just making excuses for our kids. And I thought, that was kind of odd that I was almost giving these parents, you know, from not a free pass, but saying, you know, it really wasn't you or all of you. And a lot of it had to do with genetics. Mm-hmm. But they would resist that idea that in some ways, you know, certain people are just more genetically prone to, to addiction. They would resist that idea. And I said, well, wait a minute. Whether you have had problems or not, how many of you had family members that did it? Every hit would go up. Yeah. And I'd say, case closed. But I think part of the resistance that these parents had was it was giving up that last vestige of control that somehow. I can find the right therapist, the right experience, the right book, the right whatever, and I can be the author of my kid's recovery. You know, when you have people like Robert DuPont and other experts that are clearly talking about this being a brain disease, that doesn't mean that people don't have to accept responsibility. I think when they hear the disease model, they often think, well, you're giving them an excuse. You know, even if you accept the disease model for... Uh, it, it doesn't mean you don't take responsibility for managing your disease. You don't have to feel guilty about having a disease. You do have to take responsibility for managing it once you understand that. Yeah. And, uh, so I don't really see it as letting people off the hook. If you're prone to diabetes, yeah. you, you really shouldn't be eating desserts like other people. Uh, I would uh, recommend this book to anyone about to have kids, anyone with kids, grandparents. You're very forthcoming about your own downhill journey, your blind spots. Your son Ian's recovery didn't really come about until you got in a better frame of mind where you could look at things differently and, and love with detachment and some of the things we learn in, in group and Al-Anon, that sort of thing. And then you do a lot of the uh, the research that you've provided about statistics and the state of drugs today. I think it's a great resource for parents. So what's the best way to find the book or if people want to get a hold of you directly? Well, I do have a Facebook business page, and I think it's just you do get on Facebook and uh, put in Killing the Bear. Yeah. And you should be able to get it. It's, uh, the book is available either as an e-book or... Uh, print on demand through um, uh, through Amazon and and or Kindle. I think yeah. Kindle is part of Amazon now, so that's the easiest way. I think it's the same price as an ebook or print on demand. So, and if you don't mind me asking, how's uh, home life? How are things with Ian? Uh, he's doing very well. He's, he's making more money than I did at his age. He's, <laughs> he's a one page designer um, in a stable relationship and. And it's over for about 13 years now. It helped that I got into my own recovery through actually a mixed AA Al Anon group where I could listen to people and listen listen to specifically to people in recovery, find out what really helped them rather than you know nagging and screaming and demanding that they stop. I I found some other ways to relate, but uh, also to let. I had to realize that people had to be the author of their own recovery. Yeah. And you can be supportive of it, but you can't do it for them. Mm-hmm. You can, and, you know, learning how to be supportive and how to love someone, especially when they're struggling. You know, it always struck me, Joe, I go to meetings where somebody comes in pretty raw. They've been cleaning this over for a couple of weeks, and they're, they're obviously distressed. And when they, when they announce, you know, how long they've been in recovery, it seems like the shorter amount of time, the more applause they get. And, uh, <laughs> like, you know, that's remarkable. Why can't we do that with our own loved ones? Yeah. Why can't we extend the same grace? Because we just know in our bones that early on you need that kind of support. How do you do that without being an enabler? Yeah. And, and you can't. But um, it, it's uh, helpful to be around other people, fellow travelers, and to learn more about this disease. Well, that's right, and uh, I think uh, books like this uh, go uh, go a long way. They really do. Thanks for reaching out. This has been great. Okay. Well, thanks for your interest, Joe. You got it.
No pleasure, only pain. A good theme for when indulgences take over our life, I suppose. We'll hear Sleepless Nights later with Kids on Drugs, not to be insensitive, but it's a really good song. <laughs> it's not as dark as everything we're talking about today, but we're not a temperance movement, and rock and roll isn't a vice I'm putting away anytime soon. <laughs> anyway, you be the judge. I, I think it's a great song, and not in bad taste. So Jeffrey Munn, like my chit-chat with Mark, where we won't only talk about the subject matter of his book, we'll talk about the process of writing a book and the benefits and challenges in this self-publishing print-on-demand world. I am going to guess what you're thinking. You have a book in you too, and maybe you do. And if so, it doesn't hurt to learn from those who have uh, been there before. So here's uh, Jeffrey first reading a segment, and then we'll get into it. The steps, be it NAAA, MACA, SLAA, for some people, they're literal instructions, and for others, they're abstracts or just principles not confined to a certain order or language. And there are many with a no, 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 please, the steps make me sneeze attitude. And we have many fine examples of people in recovery, alcoholics or people who suffer from other process or substance use disorders, who dismiss the steps completely and have a rich, full life. But anyway, here's Jeffrey Munn talking about the process or his view of the process and then we'll go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and then we'll get to one more song. Sleepless Nights is still on deck. Looking at this list, you'll see that the amount of total time needed to work the steps daily is not terribly demanding. For most people, this is time you probably would have otherwise spent being idle or doing something destructive. As I said earlier, the step work is not a miracle. Spending an hour a day doing step work is great. But if the other 23 hours of the day are spent sleeping and watching TV, it's only going to go so far. We need more in our lives if we want to be truly happy and balanced. I'll get to that in Chapter 6. By the time you've turned this into a routine, the time spent on it will seem like nothing. In the grand scheme of things, it's a minuscule amount of time that results in real, measurable changes in our behavior and overall quality of life. If it still seems like too much, start small. Meditate for five minutes in the morning, call a newcomer for five minutes, then go through your day occasionally practicing your goal traits and reflecting every few hours. Some days are busier than others, and that's fine. Just be conscious of any desire to get lazy and coast along in your recovery. Yes, things will probably get easier as you're sober longer, but that does not mean you should be complacent. There will always be days that test your recovery foundation. If you ever feel yourself slipping back into old ways, up your game and do a little more of everything we've discussed thus far. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks for uh, agreeing to be on uh, Rebellion Dogs Radio. I will say right at the start, I think it's a great book. It's concise, it's logical, and uh, it really doesn't... I mean, the principles are the same, aren't they? Uh, they haven't really changed from the original. It's just a more contemporary way of looking at the process of addiction and recovery. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, your uh, sort of introduction to the whole 12-step model, and if you had an experience with, ooh, this kind of goes against my worldview, how am I going to deal with that? Very early in my life, I was kind of agnostic, never been particularly theistic. But uh, I started using drugs and drinking around the age of uh, 16, 17. I hit bottom pretty quickly and went to an outpatient program, and the person there who was running the program was very 12-step focused. And he required me to go to three meetings a week to be part of that program, and, and so I did. And I actually really liked them off the bat. I really liked the people. I really liked the vibe. Um, and because I liked the vibe and I liked the people so much, I really wanted to buy into the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I I did I did my best to to jump in with both feet and 
I was given, you know, exercises by sponsors to make a list of all the character traits of my own higher power and define my own higher power. They tried really hard to get me to adopt some type of belief in something outside of myself that was getting me sober. I found myself often wanting to lean into definitions of spirituality and definitions of a higher power that were just very, very much based in psychology and common sense. And I know this isn't everybody's experience, but I grew up, I kept feeling pulled back into more kind of a spiritual, supernatural way Mm -hmm. of looking at a higher power. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I just decided, you know, this isn't, this isn't working for me. The way I phrased it in the book is that I felt like I was trying to shoehorn God into my recovery. Right. You know, I, I had found things that worked. I had found behavioral practices that worked. I had gone through therapy and discovered a lot of things in therapy that really enhanced my recovery. And it just didn't feel like it was fitting in. And so at that point, I just decided that I was going to come up with my own, you know, conception of what was happening. Right. And on a psychological level. And just uh, just go with that, and and that was a better fit for me. Yeah, I've heard it said that be it the steps or the traditions, AA is descriptive, not prescriptive. So I don't think it was ever an intent to say this is what you have to do exactly the way we've laid it out. They're just trying to describe in their own words what happened, what it was like, what it's like now, type right. of thing. I never really took issue with the literature too much. There were a couple things that I that I didn't like. How old were you when you got sober? It was more the experience I had with people in the meetings that had sort of taken on um, more of a dogmatic belief system mm-hmm. around it. And, you know, it, maybe I got unlucky, but I found myself running into that a lot. When I first got sober, I was 20. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was sober for about two and a half years. Then I had a relapse. And then I got sober again, and that was about 13 years ago. In March, it'll be 13 years. And now you find yourself uh, working with people. Uh, Do you find that with uh, young people, I'm talking people in their teens or 20s, it's more typical for them to have a resistance to the whole sort of theistic approach to things? Or do you find that most people go along with that sort of thing? It really depends. Even just in Los Angeles County, depending on where I'm working, mm-hmm. there are some areas that are just the, the demographic is more religious-minded. And so it fluctuates so much with where I'm practicing and the population that I'm working with that I, I'm i not sure. My, my sense is that younger folk in general are moving away from religion mm-hmm. for the most part. But there are, there are plenty of of younger people who are still perfectly open to the more traditional approach to the 12 steps. Have you uh, gone searching for your own purposes or just to, uh, you know, add to the uh, sort of uh, weapons in the arsenal, gone to smart recovery, refuge recovery, life ring, or recommended women go to women for sobriety, for instance? I haven't done a whole lot of research into those. I, I've looked at them from time to time, especially early on when I was really searching for something else. I know I looked at smart recovery. I looked at moderation management. Yep. Mm-hmm. The name yep. of it. That, that one struck me as just, it felt more like it was something that was born out of a resentment against AA, and I, I wasn't I wasn't feeling it too much. Yeah. Um, so no, I haven't I haven't done a lot. The truth is, I think when it comes down to social support and a practical plan of action, it, it's hard to beat twelve step programs. It's just it, what I like to teach people is how to navigate the twelve step world if you happen to not buy into any kind of supernatural idea of a higher power. Right. And I think if you're if you're able to kind of filter that out and navigate through the program in your own way, there's lots there that really works and is really great. I work the steps a couple different ways and I put some of my own suggestions in there, but I say in the book, you know, you can either use it specifically as a guide or mm-hmm. you can just read it to kind of get a general idea. Yeah. of how you'd like to alter the steps for yourself. 
Uh, and again, you're not saying this is a better way than that way. You're just opening people's minds to the idea that, look, if you have a problem with powerlessness or with morality, whose morality, just change the words in a way that is integral for your own purposes, right? Right, right. I would have I have no intention of speaking to people who have a way that works for them that's rooted in, you know, a more religious version of a higher power. I, I have no issue with that. I have no desire to tell them, hey, you're doing it wrong. For the people who have gone to 12-step programs and gotten the sense that there's not a place for them, mm -hmm. this is a book to show them, no, there's a place for you. There's a couple of other chapters that you devote time to, which I think is bang on. Uh, one is relapse, and the other is what the steps miss. So can you take me through what your thinking was in adding these? Relapse, I don't feel like it's addressed uh, appropriately in the 12-step mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. You'll, you do hear people talk about relapse and shares, and there is some kind of, I, I, I like to call it bro science. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> It's just sort of like in the fitness world, there's bro science. There's the bros that kind of yeah. have their version of the science that goes behind working out. Uh, there's kind of a version <laughs> of that in, in, in the 12-step world. Um, so, you know, there's plenty of bro science in terms of how relapse works, but I wanted to put in kind of a more psychologically based relapse prevention approach to it and um, just make it a little bit more clear. I wanted to address some of the, some of the I want to call them myths. I believe that they're myths. Yeah. Many people will disagree with me, but I wanted to address some of the myths around relapse. You know, and oftentimes in meetings you'll hear, oh, so-and-so isn't going to as many meetings. They're on the road to relapse. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's like, it's just, it's just, that is always the way it works. And I wanted to paint a little bit more of a nuanced picture of what relapse is and, and how it works. Yeah. I, I like how you describe it as a process, not an event. Right. And uh, what the steps miss, because it'd be easy to get into sort of a cocoon of uh, things aren't going well, I'm going to have to work the steps again. Maybe you need to add something else. Can you talk a little bit about that chapter? One of the things that I've always taken issue with in the 12-step world is, and, and this is not anything that I've seen in literature ever, it's just something that I hear from a good amount of people in the 12-step world, is, is kind of this idea that the 12 steps aren't a, a solution to every problem. Mm -hmm. That they are a panacea, and if you work the steps and you work them thoroughly, you're good. Mm -hmm. And I know not everybody believes that, but that's a message that was definitely sent to me quite often. It's just not the case. The steps do miss a lot of things. Now, I suppose technically when it comes to, you know, like the stuff I talk about in the book, like physical health, social support, some of the other stuff that's in there, you could technically say that's, you know, a character defect and you can just slap it into steps six and seven. But I didn't feel that was sufficient. I wanted to really go into detail into some of the other things that are necessary to have along with the 12-step work in order to really have a well-rounded uh, recovery experience. Yeah, I, I think I did myself a, a, a real disservice by getting this idea that somehow I could do this 12-step process and transcend the human experience. And then when I wasn't, you know, feeling good all of the time, I thought, you know, I, I didn't do it right. And, um, right. Why am I not always happy, joyous, and free, like they say? Exactly, yeah. And, uh, you know, and and it's, I, I have this mantra now, sober enough. My uh, goal in the day is to be sober enough, to have enough recovery capital that I'm going to get through the day. It's okay to get angry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to uh, eat cookies when I didn't plan to. I can make little corrections as I go along, but I, I don't need to get this perfect, spike the football and win the game of recovery. Now that you're an author, what surprises have you found about the sort of publishing world and the, uh, you know, finding time for promoting it? I'm, I'm glad you've been on our show. I, I hope it helps, but 
I know you blog as well, right? I do blog, yeah. And uh, what surprises have you found about uh, the publishing world or, or myths that right. have been debunked from your uh, experience with it? So what was supposed to happen <laughs> was I was supposed to <laughs> I was supposed to write this book. Yeah. And then when you write a book, you become uh, a best-selling author, millionaire, famous person overnight. <laughs> I was going to go to sleep. I was going to wake up and, you know, a couple 10,000 so copies of my books would be sold. Uh, the self-publishing world is really, uh, it's intense and it requires a lot of very consistent work. It's great in that anybody who has something to say of value can now get their book published. They can get their ideas out there for people to see. The downside is that all of that in terms of marketing and, and promotion is totally up to you. And uh, it takes a lot of time and it takes consistency and it takes patience. It's been a good opportunity for me to work on some of my goal character traits of, of being patient and being humble. You know, I can have goals. I can have lofty goals, but just yeah. trying to avoid being grandiose. Yeah. <laughs> and and ex expecting miracles, which yeah. obviously is not something I would expect. Yeah, yeah especially if you about. don't believe um, in them. <laughs> right, right. I don't think uh, it's necessarily a superior way to sort of the traditional uh, book brick-and-mortar industry, which still exists, of course, because right. it, wouldn't it be nice to have someone to do all the marketing for you so you could devote your efforts to maybe writing another book or going back sure. to your practice? But, yeah, you, you've got to be the, uh, the marketing executive. It can be fun. If yeah. you're into that sort of thing, you know, yeah. if you enjoy that process, it, it can be a lot of fun. Yeah. And what's the best way for people who are intrigued to get a hold of you and or your book? Uh, the best place to, well, you can find my books on um, Amazon.com. So I just I actually just released my second book. So Things Over Without God is my is my first book, it's mm -hmm. my baby. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I just released a book called... Um, Parenting a Video Game Addict, and it's for parents who have kids that are addicted to video games, and it just outlines some techniques for parenting them, setting boundaries, setting limits, um, and how to do that in a way that hopefully works. So uh, those can be found on Amazon, exclusively on Amazon. Yep. And uh, then there's my website where you can uh, look at my blog and get a hold of me personally if you'd like. It's practicallysane.net. I do have a presence on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, I try to post there as often as I can. I really enjoy the book, and I think the way to uh, combat, you know, the dogmatic approach is the more the merrier. The more books we can sort of right. bring that we can say, well, if you're tired of reading that one, let's read this one for 12 weeks. Then we'll try another exactly. one. And, and people will find the book they love and their way to recovery, and hopefully they'll be able to share that with others. So it's it's a lot of work putting something like this together. Um, I notice you quite cutely made it almost exactly 164 pages. That was, uh, that was, that was precious. <laughs> that was not intentional. It really wasn't. <laughs> yeah, but uh, another uh, secular miracle. <laughs> Keep up the good work, Jeffrey. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Bye now. One, two, three. For a while, the future was in front of us. We're as ready as we'll never be to give it up. To really start all over, got to rip it up. But there ain't nothing we can do about it.
suck the very life right out from inside your guts We got, got to give it up and it's gonna be rough But there ain't nothing we can do about it You wanna know what's next without having a look Back at yourself knowing very well what we took You feel it coming, coming on like they told you we would Now there ain't nothing we can do about it Kids on Drugs, Sleepless Nights as a band. Links to the music, the books, and the authors, all found at RebellionDogsPublishing.com. Go to episode 43 of Rebellion Dogs Radio. It's all there. As always, share this, repost it, download it, or any other way you want to share content. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Thanks again, Jeffrey Munn. Thanks again, Mark Andrew Tennyson. We still have a little time on the clock, so here's a little more of uh, Mark uh, reading from uh, Killing the Bear, Surviving Teen Addiction. I suspect that this complacency affects other parents as well. You don't need to work with abused and neglected kids to suffer from it. You can simply be lulled into the state by the relatively pain-free years of your children's pre-adolescence, convinced that they have done everything right with their kids, these parents never imagined that their children could get involved in the nightmare world where my son found himself. So when it happens, it, it is devastating. The most gnawing realization I had to, d- to deal with as Ian's problems worsened, a realization that I struggled with today, was my belief that I should have known better, that I should have seen it coming. I had a graduate-level education in child development, an extensive first-hand experience working with troubled children. Why didn't I see the early signs of the problem with someone so close to me? One of the problems was my education, or more to the point, my lack of education about addiction. I believe, as many other social workers and psychologists, that alcohol and drug problems were symptomatic of some deeper issue. In some ways, this made me an enabler with credentials. What I thought about addiction, that it is merely an expression of some other problem, was one of the most dangerous beliefs I maintained. It caused me to hide in shame, seek out professionals who shared the same false beliefs, and put my son's life at risk. There was another reason for my blindness. It was more than my professional pride or lack of education about addiction. By the time Ian started seeing his new therapist in 1999, I was beginning to consider that there was something I needed to address in my life, something which may have contributed to Ian's problems. It was something I did not want to look at. It was time for me to look at my own drinking. This is Tracy Shabala. I'm a writer for The Fix, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio.